Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. You may know that last Friday was the kickoff to a week of youth climate strikes across the globe. Strikes took place in cities in 150 different nations, where children and teens took to the streets to voice their anger and alarm over the current state of our environment. The youth organized themselves across social media with the help of a number of NGOs around the world, and they held signs and wave flags and donned t-shirts, voicing their grave concern over the rising global temperature and their anger that the world's governments aren't taking serious action, putting their futures at risk. Strike organizers estimate that around 4 million youth turned out in thousands of cities and towns worldwide. This seems to be the first time that children and youth have protested across the globe, demanding that action be taken to halt what they claim is a global climate emergency. I would really encourage you to go online to see pictures from all over the world. It is really moving to see so many cultures and skin colors and languages and socioeconomic classes all voicing a common desire. There's photos you can find easily online from Berlin and Melbourne and London and New York, Uganda, Croatia, Albania, Kenya, Pakistan, India, Brazil, to name just a few. Well, in the midst of this week of global youth climate strikes was the United Nations Climate Summit that was held on September 23rd at the UN in New York City. The summit is in preparation for the international climate negotiations that are going to be held next year in 2020, which is the deadline set back in 2015 in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change for countries to deliver their emissions reduction commitments. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said, and I quote, I am appealing for leadership from politicians, from businesses and scientists, and from the public everywhere. We face a direct existential threat. Climate change is moving faster than we are, he said. Sharing a voice and a mood with the youth climate strikers, environmentally minded government leaders echoed the same sense of doom and emergency across the globe if change doesn't happen quickly. President Trump, Vice President Pence, and the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Kelly Craft stopped by the summit for about 10 minutes before heading to a religious freedom event. Based on guidelines for the summit that were set forth by the U.N. Secretary General, Only countries who do not support the expansion of coal production were allowed to speak at the summit. So therefore, the U.S. did not have a speaking role, nor did China, Australia, or Japan. Incidentally, China and the U.S. are the top greenhouse gas emitters in the world right now. At the beginning of the summit, or I'm sorry, at the end of the summit, the consensus seems to be that by almost any standard, it was a disappointment. So here's some of the positive outcomes from the summit. About 80 countries and more than 100 cities promised to achieve zero greenhouse emissions by 2050. Mostly developing nations pledged an end to coal use. A few developed nations committed more money to the Green Climate Fund, which helps poor nations deal with climate change. So those are some of the positive outcomes. Some of the disappointments include the United States has already pulled out of the Paris Agreement, and our emissions continue to rise. China failed to announce new targets. India remains committed to coal projects well beyond 2020, and the European Union did not announce a plan to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. So basically, in sum, there was a disappointing showing by the world's largest carbon emitters, and the UN summit really did not net much global commitment to improving or protecting the climate. A major highlight of both the youth strikes and the the UN summit has been Swedish 16-year-old Greta Thunberg. Maybe you have seen pictures of her or video of her online. She's everywhere right now. Videos of Greta's passionate plea and speech delivered before the UN summit have gone viral. She's been headlined on all major media in the last few days, and she really does have the attention of the entire world. In the midst of her very emotional and moving speech, Greta said this. 
You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? If you saw that video, you know that Greta was visibly shaken, even near tears, and just very, very passionate in her plea to world leaders. So who is Greta Thunberg anyway? Well, she describes herself on Twitter like this, 16-year-old climate activist with Asperger's. But I'm wondering, how is it that a 16-year-old girl from Sweden has suddenly become the face of a global movement? How did she come to have the attention of world leaders? Just six weeks ago, or maybe six months ago, definitely a year ago, no one really knew who this girl was. She addressed Swedish parliament, which I would say is a feat in its own right, in August of 2018. So how has she captivated the entire world since then? Certainly, she is articulate and passionate. You can see that easily in the video. Certainly, she has an important message and is indeed deserving of listening ears. She's charismatic and she's a mobilizer of people. And I don't want to take away what is rightfully hers, that passion, that purpose, that good cause. She is smart, well-spoken and motivated. She is rightly a girl to be reckoned with, but how is it that she is now considered an authority, an expert, a leading figure in climate change policy? Well, there was an article written back in May in a British magazine called Standpoint, and I'm going to link it in my show notes. And it really illuminates the situation. It gives us a fuller picture. Greta's family's story is the one that we hear repeatedly told in mainstream media. It's that Greta launched a one-girl school strike at the Swedish parliament on the morning of August 20th, 2018. And while she was there, a man by the name of Ingmar Renshag, um, who happens to be the founder of the social media platform we have no time. He happened to be passing by. He posted a photo of Greta on his personal Facebook page and a newspaper picked it up and ran her story on their website. And then she went viral. That's the story we keep hearing. But the Standpoint article documents a major journalistic investigation that reveals Greta really was not and is not a one girl movement. In fact, the supposed coincidental passerby Ingmar Renshag had met Greta prior to that day and knew about the address that she would be giving to parliament from a mailing list from a climate activist named Bo Thorin who is the leader of the Fossil Free Dollsland group. So journalists uncovered an email from Bo Thorin to a group of environmental activists, academics, and politicians to plan, quote, how we can involve and get help from young people to increase the pace of the transition to a sustainable society. So in other words... This group was on the lookout for some young, fresh faces to champion their cause. Thorin approached Greta and some other youth who had recently won an environmental op-ed writing competition to consider planning a school strike for the environment, something kind of modeled after the school walkouts that happened um, after the school shooting here in the U.S. after Parkland, Florida. Well, apparently none of the other students were interested, but Greta was, and so she did it by herself, a one-girl school strike. But a little bit more backstory from Ingram Renshog, the passerby. He created the platform We Don't Have Time back in 2017 after being trained by Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. The goal of We Don't Have Time is to, quote, hold leaders and companies accountable for climate change by leveraging the power of social media. So his background, Ingrid Renshog's background, and the background of his CEO is in finance, not in environmental activism. Previously, he had founded an investment relations company, and the CEO had founded one of Sweden's biggest real estate funds, respectively. Additionally, one of their investors includes a family 
who a guy whose family controls Kinevik, one of Sweden's largest investment corporations. So you can learn more about all that's behind the people that are behind Greta in the Standpoint article. But suffice it to say here, her rise to power and fame has been bolstered by lobbyists, public relations executives, eco-academics, think tanks, and some of Sweden's largest energy companies. Because as this article explains so well, and I'm quoting from the article here, these companies are preparing for the biggest bonanza of government contracts in history, the greening of the Western economies. Greta, whether she and her parents know it or not, is the face of their political strategy. So while I absolutely want to and appropriately laud Greta for her passions and her efforts, we should not be duped into thinking her rise to fame is the result of altruistic efforts on behalf of any government. It's not a fairy tale. This is not an incidence of David and Goliath. This is a calculated effort on behalf of some very powerful corporations who stand to make a lot of money as governments across the globe commit to being more green. So in spite of the suspicious backing of Greta, I do want to applaud her. It is indeed arresting and good to see a 16-year-old girl calling out adults and world leaders, holding us accountable for a seeming lack of concern for the demise of our environment. She's not wrong when she says, you have stolen my dreams in my childhood with your empty words. She is right that nations around the world, including the United States, have lived in such a way that we have ignored the lasting ramifications of what we would call progress. It's true. In the name of progress, we have indeed stolen from the future. Every extinct species, every degree that the world gets warmer due to the industrial impact forged by humans is an indictment. The decisions have been made, processes have been invented to improve the here and now, but I would say with little thought for the future, we just have to be honest. Greta is right to call us to responsibility for what we've done to our communities, for our children, for our globe. Our history does reveal that efforts toward progress have been largely self-focused. In order to serve ourselves in the here and now, we have forsaken the future. But I have to say, I have some significant concerns for Greta, and I know others do too. The author of the Standpoint article says that it's risky to voice those concerns. He says, query their motives and you risk being accused of climate denial or of bullying a vulnerable child with Asperger's. Well, I don't want to be seen as either one, but be that as it may, I'm concerned for Greta's personal well-being as she has been made the center of this latest climate emergency movement. It's evident in the video from the UN summit that she bears the weight of the world on her shoulders. She perceives herself and others perceive her to be the savior of our environment. Whether they were pure motives or not, adults in power have thrust this girl into the spotlight. And she now clearly feels responsible for getting the entire world to change our ways and turn the climate around. This is way too heavy a weight for anyone to bear, you guys, let alone a 16-year-old girl. We do this all the time, though, don't we? We look for a leader, a spokesperson, a savior, and then we put all of our hope on their efforts. And then what? What's going to happen to poor Greta when the environment continues to decline, when the world's temperatures continue to rise, when no progress is made in carbon emissions commitments by 2020. Greta is not the savior, and it's unfair for anybody to place that on her. She is not the savior of the world, but she needs to know the savior of the world. She needs to know that there is a God in heaven, and he is sovereign, and he cares for her. She needs to know that he, and only he, holds everything together, that this life, this globe, is not on her. It's in his hands. I so longed for Greta to know that reality. When I watched her speech and saw the weight of the world on her shoulders, I so longed for somebody to tell her, Greta, Greta, 
It's not on you. We have a sovereign God. He sees you and he cares and he's got the whole world in his hands. This is what Greta tweeted on Twitter back on August 31st, 2019. So just like a month ago, this is what she tweeted, her words. Before I started school striking, I had no energy, no friends, and I didn't speak to anyone. I just sat alone at home with an eating disorder. All of that is gone now since I have found a meaning in a world that sometimes seems shallow and meaningless to so many people. So we see here in her own words, she has placed her meaning, her hope, her very identity in saving the climate. There are many replies, hundreds, thousands to that tweet, but one reply is exemplary of all the rest. It says, you are wonderful, Greta. Never stop trying to save the world. You guys, this is too much. The world is going to crush her. Placing all of that on a 16-year-old girl or anyone else with trying to save the world is a weight that no one can bear. This movement is going to harm her. Greta is a young girl with a bright and long future ahead of her. I fear though that she will meet an early demise because no matter how much of this movement is her idea or her effort or her words, she is being exploited. On many levels, she is being used and my heart goes out to her. If you've listened to just a couple of episodes of All Things, you know I hate to see women and girls or anyone exploited in the name of empowerment. Well, I just want to close out this episode of All Things by wrestling a little bit with how Christians should think about the climate. You guys know, I'm sure, that there are pockets of resistance within the church in seeking to care for the environment. There are pockets of resistance. There are groups that are that push back against that, that say this is not a priority. This is not somewhere that Christians should be spending any time or energy or care. There are people that hold the utilitarian view, meaning that the earth is just ours to use and to exploit, that God gave us dominion over the earth so we can do whatever it is we want to do to the earth to serve us. I think that view is wrong. There's the Gnostic view, the view that says the material world doesn't matter. All that really matters is our souls and our spirits and what you cannot see, but bodies do matter. God created bodies. God created the physical world. He created the trees and the fish and all the all that is in the earth. And so bodies and creation and physical things do matter. There are Christians who don't want to be seen as new age or pantheistic. Those are movements that tend to really care about the environment. So I think that many in the church want to distance themselves from caring about the environment because of that. Or there's definitely Christians that say, hey, there's just not really a crisis. We need more data. There's really not an environmental crisis looming. We need to know more. And I think there's other reasons as well, maybe just being lazy or just being straight up selfish, which I can certainly testify to and must acknowledge, just being selfish and caring more about convenience and ease and comfort and safety and security than I care about the creation that's around me. All of these objections, all of these areas of resistance really miss the point. As Christians, we are called to steward God's creation no matter what. Whether there's a crisis or not, you and I as believers and followers of our creator, our maker, we have been tasked with stewarding creation. No matter who else is caring for creation or not, no matter what the data does or doesn't say, we are called to be stewards of creation under all conditions. A biblical worldview really starts with the doctrine of creation. In the beginning, God created. That's our God. That's our creator. That's our king. Why wouldn't we want to care for all that he has made? Genesis 1 talks about how we are made in God's image. He's a creator and he's a caretaker, and we are meant to be like that. We are meant to be that way too. His first commands for us were to care for the garden and to work it, to rule over and subdue creation, plants, and animals, but not in an exploitive, selfish way. That is far from God's image, but in a selfless, careful way, a way that's good for all humans, a way that's good for all of creations. 
Environmentalists tend to say that humans are the problem. They say we ought to stop procreating, that humans are the cause of our global demise. But that's not true. What's true is that humans were created very good by our good God. But we and our sinful nature have abused creation rather than care for it. And it's good and right for us to repent where appropriate. The problem isn't people, it's that we people have not stewarded well. Like our first parents, we have turned our thoughts inward. We've asked, what can I get out of what's around me? Rather than how can I obey a good God who has given good gifts and therefore thrive as a steward of these good gifts? Psalm 19 um, verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Colossians 1.20 says that through himself, Jesus is going to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then of course, Revelation speaks to the resurrection of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will dwell forever with our maker and our savior. So we Christians are called throughout scripture to care for this world, this dwelling place that God made and has allowed us to live in. Francis Schaeffer said, the Christian is called upon to exhibit this dominion, but exhibit it rightly, treating the thing as having value in itself, exercising dominion without being destructive. Even John Calvin back in the 1500s interpreted dominion to mean a responsible care and keeping that does not neglect, injure, abuse, degrade, dissipate, corrupt, mar, or ruin the earth. The dominion that we, you and I are called to, Christian, is to cultivate creation, not consume creation. How can you and I cultivate rather than consume? How can we be cultivators rather than consumers? How how can you and I cultivate the spaces and the people and the relationships and the environments that God has given us rather than seeing the earth or products or people or resources as things to be consumed? How can we see them as places and things to be cultivated? It's hard to know exactly how to be a good environmentally minded Christian. It seems like there is a lot of virtue signaling and fake hustle out there. We do things to feel environmentally responsible or to look environmentally responsible. We want to be perceived as savvy and caring, but so often those very things are not helpful to the earth, but they're actually hurtful to the earth. For example, some scientists say that solar panels are hurtful to the environment because of the waste that they create and that the black panels actually heat the atmosphere and damage the ozone. So it's worse for the earth or that bike lanes cause traffic to back up, therefore increasing carbon emissions. So actually riding your bike to work is worse for the planet than driving your car to work. Even Greta Thunberg gives us an example. She came to the U.S. by a wind-powered ship rather than by an airplane. So that spared her the cause of emitting carbon fuel into the atmosphere from that airplane. But what was the cost? There was a crew that had to sail her ship, and then they had to fly back to Europe after sailing here. And what kind of carbons were emitted with the building of the ship? It's just not that cut and dried. It's hard to know sometimes how to um, steward the environment well. It's complicated. It's hard to know what to pursue, what is best for the environment. And it's nearly impossible for us to know exactly what kind of carbon footprint was made when the things we purchased and use were created. So I think at the end of the day, we have to keep coming back to the question, how can I cultivate rather than consume? How can I be a good and selfless and loving steward of what God has graciously given me? Absolutely, we should do the research, do the best that we can to understand what's going to be helpful in my specific context. 
but our God is the author of the good, the true, and the beautiful. So how can we seek that out? How can we make those things happen? How can we design what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful in our own lives, in our own front yards, in our own churches, in our own neighborhoods, in our own relationships? How can we pursue the good, the true, the beautiful? I don't have any easy answers, but that's our calling. May we seek the Lord and his help in responding well. May we not be outdone by atheists and those who reject God. May they not be better caretakers of the earth. You and I know the creator. We should excel here. We know him personally. We love him fiercely. May we obey him joyfully. Thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. I look forward to chatting with you next week.